So the thing is, I feel like a lot of the fears that people have about socialism um, are actually more of a reflection of the society that we already live in, right? A division of society into a group of people that does all the work while a small sector of, you know, quote unquote, freeloaders or whatever, that sounds a lot like capitalism. It sounds like the world that we already live in. Welcome to All That's Left, a podcast from Left Voice. My name is Odin. The holidays can be a challenging time for socialists. This is a time of year when many of us travel home for the holidays and we spend time with family members who don't necessarily share our politics or don't even know what socialism is. You might even have been in situations where confronting or debating you about socialism, like trying to ask you gotcha questions, is a source of entertainment for your family members. So how do we maneuver these conversations? How do we answer the questions we get about socialism, like, for example, at the family dinner table? Well, today we've got a little holiday gift for you. Uh, In this episode, me and my fellow Left Voice comrade, Madeline Freeman, try to dissect some of the most common questions socialists get. Questions like, does socialism mean we'll have to give up all of our possessions and face totalitarianism? Is it hypocritical for socialists to have iPhones? Does socialism kill innovation and produce freeloaders? The answer to all these questions is no. And on this episode, we'll try to give relatively brief, digestible explanations as to why. From Left Voice, we wish you a happy holidays, a happy new year, and of course, a very hearty, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back in 2024. Here's my conversation with Maddie. Maddie, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Odin. Thanks for having me. (laughs) You know, usually... People come on the podcast, I ask them nice questions, it's all friendly and things like that. But today, just to warn you, I'm going to get a little bit adversarial. I'm oh going to I'm gonna hold your feet to the fire. <laughs> I'm going to really get to the bottom of this, uh, what the socialism malarkey is all about. So, you know, this, this right now I'm getting into character, I'm becoming your annoying conservative relative or your annoying sort of like ultra neoliberal uh, relative. Um, and let me start with kind of a basic question about, you know, what socialism fundamentally is. So fundamentally, from what I understand it, socialism basically just means taking everyone's stuff away, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's about kicking people out of their houses, taking their stuff. That is what will happen under socialism, right? Hmm. No. (laughs) (laughs) Good. That sounds awfully like capitalism, actually. (laughs) Wow, burn. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But um, I feel like, yeah, this question really, like, gets at the heart of everything right away, which is really good. Like, this question has been around since the advent of, like, the socialist movement in general. Like, it's written in, like, the very foundational document (laughs) when Marx and Engels were kicking around writing the Communist Manifesto. They say that, like, the theory of the communists may be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property. And then they actually, like, they, they take up this exact argument, which I think is really funny. They're like, okay, Marx and Engels, so, like, my hard earned stuff, you're gonna take it away? Like, that's what you want? That's your idea of a liberated society? 
And they automatically are like, no, we have a very specific definition of private property. And private property is the relations of production under capitalism. And that is like a very specific definition. There's like a select few people in society who own all the services, goods, resources, technology, and machinery that we need to survive and need, and need to make what we need to survive. And capitalism develops in such a way that people can own that stuff and then exploit labor, exploit people to work those things to produce goods, and then those workers then in turn buy stuff with the salary that they make. What's key there, of course, is that like the capitalists are trying to make a profit off of that labor. So anyway, but that's essentially like what private property is, right? It's not just the collection of stuff that you own. <laughs> it's more essentially about who is in control of what we need to survive. And I think that that's what Marx and Engels are, are getting at and what we say in socialism when we, as socialists, when we talk about, you know, socializing the means of production or abolishing private properties, getting rid of that exploitative relationship. And so there's no one who can own what we need to survive except the people who make those things. The producers control what there is in society, control how things get made. The people who use things control what gets made without this question of like the profit motive. I think that that, I mean, people seem to really have this big fear mm -hmm. under socialism that like, you know, if socialism comes that they'll be kind of like hunted out into the street and like, you know, <laughs> stripped down to like the, the clothes on their back and mm -hmm. things like that. But I mean, realistically, the only people who should be like, afraid in air quotes mm -hmm. here is you know if you are like a landlord a capitalist not regular people who are just like living in houses certainly not you know people like you and me who are just you know tenants in apartments well yeah exactly like I think that that gets to something that's also the reality of life under capitalism is that very few of us own anything very few of us have private property. And so most people, like, they don't own their houses. The bank owns their house. House. If you have a car payment, you don't own your car. <laughs> the bank owns your car. You don't own the electricity, the water, the uh, internet, the gas that pumps through your house. And most of us also, like, live off of a substantial amount of debt and credit. And so if you can't pay off that credit to the bank, then also your stuff is still not yours. That can be requisitioned in the worst you know, worst case scenario. So like this question of like owning things in general under capitalism is sort of a myth in and of itself. But that said, like, I think what you said got at the heart of it, which is like, who does own stuff are these like big landowners, like, you know, agricultural uh, corporations who own tons and tons of acres of land, corporations who own tons of property in order to have distribution centers to have factories like they own all of what we use in our day-to-day -day lives and of course on top of that the the landlords who own the houses that we live in like those are those are the targets of expropriation those are the things that we're coming for so that more people that we're coming for that's very aggressive i think tar and feather them exactly exactly but those properties, those um, those resources are, are what will be collectivized and what will be made more accessible to more people. And that's what we mean. That's like the private property that we as communists seek to overturn. Yeah, that's really great. I just to sort of 
tie a nice bow around this question. So we've sort of established that socialism is not about theft or ruining everybody's lives. What is then what we would call like a basic definition of socialism? Basically, if we think about, you know, capitalism as an economic system, and we think about socialism as an economic system that's puts people over profit. You know, I think that's a phrase that like kind of puts a nice bow on it. We can then call socialism the economic system in which the producers own the means of production as opposed to a capitalist who owns the means of production and then sells it out based in, and makes a profit based on the, off of the labor of the people who do work. Right? So if socialism is an economic system based on the the control like workers control then that system eliminates the need for profit, eliminates the need for exploitation, and with it a whole host of really ugly social re- uh, social relationships that are, you know, maintained and given fuel through capitalism. And so in a sense, like, there are twin fights against oppression and exploitation, and socialism is a step towards building the, the the social relationships that can get rid of that oppression and exploitation, if that makes sense. So it's a system in which, like, yeah, the material conditions for, um, you know, exploitation, the condition in which there are sectors of society that have to sell their labor that can't survive without, you know, selling that labor and, and also oppression of marginalized communities for one reason or another, the divisions within the working class are are erased. Those material conditions are erased, and therefore we can build towards a society based on liberation, based on human flourishing, not based on, you know, slaving away at work for eight hours, 12 hours, 16 hours a day. Well said. <laughs> okay, I, I'm getting back into character. You, you can tell I don't really have an acting background. I'm really kind of all over the place here, but I'm, I'm doing my best. Uh, My next question, as your conservative family member, is a real gotcha question. I I don't think you'll be able to uh, wiggle your way out of this one. (laughs) So, I happen to know you in real life. I have Mm. noticed that you not only have an iPhone, you also have a MacBook. And yet, you say that you hate capitalism. Mm. I want to know, why are you such a huge hypocrite? And why do you refuse to appreciate the fruits of capitalist innovation? I know it's a joke, but I feel intimidated. <laughs> you can tell that my mom's a leftist because I have no, <laughs> no thick skin when yeah. these questions. Um, we the thing the fact is that we do live in a capitalist society, and you know, as Marxists, like on the one hand, we don't see, you know, like things in terms of, you know, capitalism, evil, bad, you know, everything else good, or, or, you know, it's, it's not as simple as that. Like, I mean, capitalism is bad. Yes. <laughs> but with capitalism, it, it is just, it's another phase in the history of humankind. And with it brought horrible conditions of exploitation and oppression, as we've talked about, and that's why I want to overthrow it and build a new society. But on the other hand, Capitalism, in a way, has also developed the means of production and technology and paved the way to be able to have the type of liberated society that we're fighting for every day. And so in that sense, like, for example, like technology has developed to such a point where we have things like iPhones and MacBooks and that in and of itself, those things aren't bad. And in a sense, we need those things 
in a lot of ways to to survive in capitalist society, right? Like at this point, you know, a, a smartphone, having your having maps, having <laughs> uh, your email ready to hand and living in capitalist society and, and having to, you know, take part in those things or, or even enjoy aspects of what, you know, humankind has built despite and in part because of uh, this system isn't a moral quandary. Like, what is the alternative? Also, we can't live outside this system and we can't, you know, fight it without the tools that capitalism has already given us, you know, like, Social media is a huge part of organizing and a lot of that is accessible through these MacBooks and, and smartphones and, and all of that. I feel like the implicit in this question of like, mm-hmm. you're a socialism and yet you have an iPhone is like, firstly, this thing of like, like you've been saying that, you know, we live under capitalism, we can't not live in capitalism. Mm-hmm. But I think the other implicit part of it is that like, capitalism is the only thing that can bring about this kind of innovation that like, you know, we should, we should thank Steve Jobs for the iPhone. We should thank, you know, Bill Gates for the personal computer and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that's also a question is like, could we get these kinds of innovations without capitalism, like Mm -hmm. under socialism, if we, and this is getting a little bit deep and maybe a little bit into the weeds, but under socialism, and if we don't have the profit motive, are we still going to be able to get innovations and in technology? Are we still going to be able to make scientific progress, for example? Yeah. So one of the things that I feel like comes up when we talk about this whole like, ah, oh, but you're a socialist, but you have an iPhone or a MacBook or whatever, is that it's like, well, you know, Jeff Bezos and, you know, Steve Jobs, like without them, without capitalism, you wouldn't have the things that you so desperately cling to every day, right? Without the capitalists, we wouldn't have innovation. We wouldn't have the things that are like, you know, make our lives so rich or or, or produce what's necessary. It's capitalism and competition that, that drives uh, invention and innovation. But that's a distorted picture, right? It's workers who make those things. (laughs) It's scientists, it's engineers who create that technology, who create the technology and then test it, who spend years perfecting those things so that we can have the finished product in our hand. And it's the workers on the assembly line who are paid pennies compared to the capitalists, who are paid not enough to live, who put their bodies in danger and in terrible working conditions to produce those things. It's workers who produce the technology that we use every day. It's not just a product of, you know, one genius or one capitalist who is able to, you know, graciously put down the money to make these things possible. It's actually workers who do those things. And under socialism, that would only flourish, right? If production is actually in the hands of the people who make things, then We can make things geared towards solving human problems, right? And I think the other part of this argument, and this is one that I think, you know, we hear kind of from both sides, actually, is that, okay, well, you say all of this stuff, but it's true that what you're holding in your hand with your iPhone or the MacBook or whatever, like those things actually are produced unethically. The whole reason that you're able to afford those things is because it's paid for with the labor of people thousands of miles away who are working for pennies, right? So aren't you a big old hypocrite because you say you care about workers and yet you use stuff that's directly 
made by the exploitation of workers across the world. And that's the thing. I think it's kind of gets to the heart of the issue because for socialists, like it's not inevitable that things are made that way. It's not inevitable that costs are down because labor costs are down. That's the way that capitalism functions, right? It's because capitalists make a profit by keeping wages and production costs as low as possible. That's what's not inevitable. That's the thing that we fight to change. The horrible working conditions in an iPhone factory, they're not, you know, inevitable. And that's what socialists fight against. We fight for workers to realize that we can push back, right? Like we fight for workers to realize that actually those conditions are things that we can change and we don't have to live like that. We don't have to put our lives on the line so that, you know, Apple can continue to make billions of dollars. And in fact, as socialists, we don't stop there, right? We say, yes, fight for better working conditions now, but also we want workers to have permanent control of the of production, permanent control of making all of the things that we already use to survive, right? Life would be better, <laughs> conditions would be better if we ran not just the factory, but the entire world. And so it's important to say that like as socialists, we don't hate technology. We hate the way that technology is used by capitalists to exploit the working class and keep us in fear that we're not going to make enough food, make enough money to put food on the table. In the hands of technology, I'll say it again because I, I think it's so important, technology and science can flourish for, you know, in, in ways that we can't even think of, in ways that would be unprecedented. And that's really exciting. And that's the future that socialists want, this future that socialists fight for. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think this point about the ineffectiveness of capital and it's the inefficiencies of capitalism generally really cannot be overstated. I mean, as you were talking, I was also thinking about the, you know, billions and billions of dollars every year that go to share buybacks, like companies plowing enormous sums of money basically into increasing the price of their company's shares, mm -hmm. the enormous amount of money that just goes into the the casino we call the stock market that goes into financial speculation, this whole, you know, fictitious capital effectively. Uh, I think that is something that people don't think about enough in terms of like how extremely inefficient and how extremely like anti-innovation in many ways the current system is. Totally. Like even just thinking about like, like the financial sector completely disappearing, all those funds can be redirected towards, you know, uh, public services and all of that. But also you can even think about like production and distribution patterns. Like I think about always like uh, the coffee supply chain, which is actually like the most ineffective supply chain in the world where you have like things going halfway across the world and back and then being redistributed all to like end up in you know, the US eventually, and how much also that like contributes to uh, destroying the planet and all of that, like this capitalism is just essentially an illogical system, <laughs> because it's not directed by the people who make stuff run and know how to how to do that. I will say capitalism has been very good at innovating ways to make it look like you're helping the environment without actually <laughs> doing so like I'm yeah. thinking about like, carbon credits, and yeah. things like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. This is kind of leading toward this question, but, you know, this this issue of, you know, innovation, the profit motive and things like that leads me into my next question, which is, 
the critique that people have about the sort of pie in the sky nature of what socialist society could look like. I mean, I remember growing up, um, even my like my parents, my teachers, whenever this came up, they would say things like, you know, well, you know, socialism is nice in theory. Socialism is nice on paper, but it's impossible in practice because, you know, humans are inherently selfish or, you know, people are only driven by profit. And so concretely speaking, people think that like, well, socialism is unfair. Only a few people are going to end up doing the work. Everyone else is just going to take advantage of socialism and become freeloaders. What do you think? So the thing is, I feel like a lot of the fears that people have about socialism um, are actually more of a reflection of the society that we already live in, right? A division of society into a group of people that does all the work while a small sector of, you know, quote unquote freeloaders or whatever, that sounds a lot like capitalism. It sounds like the world that we already live in. The capitalists, the bosses make the money while the rest of us do all the work and can't even make enough to survive, even though we're the ones putting our bodies on the line. They garner a profit by stealing our labor, by robbing us of our time and our freedom. And that's something that capitalism produces. It's not something that would, you know, be inevitable from the type of society that we hope to build, right? For me, for for socialists, socialism is the fight for a society without those divisions, where eventually, you know, the need for this sort of ruling class dies out. It's ripped up from its roots because we all have what we need to survive. Capitalism survives off of scarcity. It manufactures that scarcity because that is profitable. Whereas socialism, it's the fight for a rationally planned economy where production and, you know, and and distribution and all of those things are, are organized so that everyone has what they need to survive. Capitalism is the thing that works the other way around. But I think the question of human nature comes up a lot. It's definitely the stuff that like comes up with my family members who are like, yeah, 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 in theory, blah, blah, all the stuff that you said. But on the one hand, like we could get into a more sort of like philosophical argument. And as Marxists, like, <laughs> yeah. we actually don't believe that there's this thing, such a thing as human nature or, or what aspects of human nature there is are directed by our material circumstances. And that's, I think, the heart of it, right, is that. Capitalism is a system inherently based off of scarcity, and that scarcity is what drives greed, is people trying to protect what they have, to get more of what they have, to feel secure. And that's because our society is based off of that inherent scarcity, that wealth is concentrated in the hands of a few. I mean, I repeat it a million times, but that, you know, wealth is concentrated in the hands of a few, and then the rest of us are sort of left to toil away our lives in order to, to survive. And so with that element removed without the exploitation that makes that possible without you know with getting rid of this this drive for profit as opposed to human need human flourishing etc with that i think things like greed and you know these bourgeois values that we're, we're talking about will sort of begin to fade away right and i'm not saying it's like gonna magically happen like as we know like it'll be a complex process to transfer to one economic system to another but we're already you know people are i think by the time that that happens there will already be many of the seeds of like <laughs> that type of society but anyway 
So I think that that's part of it is this question of like human nature and greed not really being inherent to, you know, who we are. It's more a product of the society in which we're brought up. But on the other hand, this question of freeloaders and this question of people working and, you know, the rest of the people just taking a free ride. I mean, on the one hand, like, I think that, you know, those conceptions come from a society also that like values this like hustle, live to work, work to live, no, live to work <laughs> sort of society yeah. where like, you know, this, this working yourself to the bone to make rise and grind. Yeah, exactly. Is prioritized by anything, but instead like socialism where we can organize our lives in order to just make what we need to survive and flourish, like we can do, have other pursuits. And so this sort of normalization of, of our work being our whole lives. And because it is, it's our reality. It's not even just an, it's our, you know, you get up, you work, you come home and you have a few hours and then you do it all again. But without that, like hopefully, uh, eventually, like the socialist society that we fight for is one in which people work much less. So actually there will be no freeloader. We'll all be freeloaders. Totally. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we'll all have more time to do with what we please and develop other interests and and art and music and relationships and all of those things. I think it's it's pretty beautiful. Yeah, yeah. totally. I mean, we we definitely don't need to work as much as we're working now. This is why a lot of uh, like a demand that many socialists have is you know fewer working hours in the week. This is a little bit beyond the scope of the conversation. Kind of a different topic, but like. Also, the ability for us under socialism to actually use technology to like facilitate working less and to actually make our lives better instead of, you know, currently speaking of innovation, all these technologies and things like that are used instead to exploit us more, to lay more people off, to make life even more precarious, to make people's lives governed by the whims of like a gig work app and things like that. So far, our conversation has been like kind of hypothetical. I've been throwing these questions at you like, well, what would socialism look like? Would there be freeloaders, etc.? But we do have an instance of socialism being tried. Uh, you might have heard of a little place called the Soviet Union. Hmm, and <laughs> sounds familiar. A lot of people ask, do you want the world to end up like the Soviet Union? Do you want to have, you know, scarcity, this really precarious life, get threatened with gulags and things like that? Or to put it kind of more succinctly, doesn't real life socialism inevitably end in disaster the way that people think that the Soviet Union did? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it goes back to this historical fact that we don't have a lot of good examples of revolutions succeeding right we have or, or the ones that we do have happened a while ago and so there's sort of this idea entrenched I think it kind of you know brings us back to where we started that you know capitalism is the only system we've got to make do with what we've got but the fact is is that on the one hand capitalism has produced suffering you know even in the United States the most powerful most the richest country in the world where you know, people live much better than the majority of people in, in the entire world. There's poverty. There are people who line up every day. You see it in New York. People line up every day outside of a church to get a box of free groceries. So first of all, like the idea that scarcity only ever existed in socialist countries is honestly just a lie. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, that doesn't get at the heart of it, which is 
the the idea that you know what the Soviet Union became automatically rules out any possibility of socialism ever being possible ever in history. And that's the thing. Like we also as socialists don't hold up the Stalinist Soviet Union as a good example as as socialism. It wasn't, <laughs> right? Like though the worker state that emerged out of the Russian Revolution that was, you know, automatically um socialized land that gave a you know, that uh, legalized divorce by postcard, that legalized abortion, that expanded the rights of oppressed nationalized, uh, oppressed nationalities across um, Russia and beyond, like that Soviet Union that came out of the Russian Revolution degenerated and devolved into the bureaucratized, Stalinized state that led to like millions of deaths and, and destruction and audit and honestly siding with bourgeois governments across the the world right and so that isn't the world that we imagine but it's also wasn't inevitable and i think that that's kind of where we'll break out the history books <laughs> beyond the podcast and you and i don't have time to get into all of that but as marxists and particularly as trotskyists you know uh, who we are as left voice like lots of people have taken you know looked at the history, looked at those events and said it could have been different, right? And the fact is, is that each of those failures were in a particular context where on the one hand, like Russia was already a very backwards country with an immense amount of poverty, an immense amount of troubles <laughs> and, and a need to sort of surmount those in, in order for this new socialist state to flourish, to make huge leaps in technology and all of those things. And they were doing that in the midst of a capitalist system that was just like encroaching on them from all angles. And so there were lots of complexities there in this new worker state. And then as that proceeded, you know, that scarcity and, and different, you know, tactics were used to try to ameliorate that. That's when, you know, and, and on the other hand, with a with a breakdown of internal democracy, and without, you know, the Soviets being able to, um, I mean, I don't want to throw a bunch of jargon, but like, the worker state not functioning so that the workers had control of this process of bureaucratization that we need a whole podcast on, I'm sure at some point, totally. <laughs> um, without that being able to, to flourish, you know, this bureaucracy came to pass. And that's where we get all of these stereotypes and, and this, this, you know, rewriting of history from the capitalist perspective of that, you know, socialism was doomed to the end. Um, but I think that that is the important part, right? That it's not just that in the abstract, this is where it was always heading. There were very concrete events that led to the degeneration of the Soviet Union. Some people might have this sense, um, especially I think with us, because like we do not see China currently as communist. We do not, you know, look up to Cuba as like an example to be emulated. We don't think Venezuela is socialist. We also, as you were just saying, we are critical of uh, the Soviet Union and we do not, you know, we are not pro, we're not Stalinists or pro Stalin in any way. Is there a fear um, that we are just perpetually in this sort of cycle of like, oh, this wasn't real socialism. Oh, this wasn't real socialism. Oh, but no, real socialism would be like this. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it goes back to, I think, the 
experiment, like sort of like, you know, what is it? Trial and error of a, of a Marxist or materialist, historical materialist framework, right? And there, like I said about the Soviet Union, like there are concrete reasons why those don't represent a socialist society. It's not as if we're just like, ah, we don't like it, so it's not socialist, and we try to like rewrite that history. I think what we can say is that there, it's not that we're pulling these declarations or characterizations out of the out of the sky and just sort of, you know, giving, well, you know, socialism is only when it works, right? <laughs> only when there's a successful one where we'll be like, yes, this is socialism. And we do have an example from the early years of the Soviet Union. Um, and so I think that that is something that we can sort of hold on to and looking at like the the present moment as well. And I guess one part of this that I didn't mention before, um, but I think is really important as well, is that a huge part of the failure of these projects is due to the fact that they tried to enact socialist projects in, in a single country, right? I mean, like Lenin said, like, you know, without Germany <laughs> having a revolution in, in the 20th century, like Russia was kind of doomed. I mean, I'm paraphrasing quite liberally, but, you know, I think that this is part of the the problem is that capitalism is a global system and therefore socialism will also have to be a global system. And I think that that's where it kind of um, also gets sticky. And so I think when we, you know, talk about the kind of movement we need, what kind of organizations we need, they have to also be inherently internationalist, anti-imperialist, like fighting those systems from all fronts, because that's what will enable these projects to succeed is sort of this domino effect of (laughs) revolutions and remaking of of society, social revolutions across multiple national lines. And that kind of seems like a huge insurmountable task, right? Like saying that you're like, get out of here. (laughs) You don't know what you're talking about. Like that's so abstract. (laughs) (laughs) Like it sounds like too much. But on the other hand, we can even look at examples of like the movements that we see today, like for Palestine, for example, like those are global movements, right? Like those are people working in their individual countries against their particular governments who are supporting the state of Israel, but at the same time fighting for Palestinian liberation, like our movements are global. But the key is, I think, you know, to think about how to harness that organization to what end <laughs> to get on, you know, uh, the same page about the centrality of like the working class, all of these questions of strategy that I think, you know, we've explored in other episodes. But I, I, I did want to add that aspect is that like socialism in one country can't work. And, and therefore, like these projects were kind of doomed to fail in a sense. And not because, oh, like their leaders were terrible or whatever, blah, 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 necessarily. In some cases, yes. But (laughs) on the other hand, because capitalism is a global system that puts immense pressure and repression and, you know, tries to root out these social upheavals. Well, this was a really good conversation. I have decided now for the first time that I am a socialist uh, listeners might be surprised that up until now I was not a socialist, but certainly you have made me one. Just kidding. Um, Maddie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much, Odin. Good luck at the holiday dinner table. <laughs> yes, good luck to all of our listeners as well, and you too. Thank you. Thank you.